Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning. It's Monday 6th of March on the programme on the Michael Reed Show this morning. We call their calls for eviction ban to be re-examined. Public support for the Social Democrats has more than doubled following the election of Holly Kearns as the party's new leader. And could the Social Democrats become a political force in the next general election? And when will the energy companies cut us a break and reduce the cost of domestic electricity? Don't forget, you can WhatsApp us this morning on 086-1800-658. But first this morning, extending the current eviction ban might impact private rental supply, according to a housing charity. Threshold says there are negative consequences for renters in the short and long term. Homeless charities have called for the ban to be extended beyond the end of March to prevent more people entering homelessness. John Mark McCafferty, Chief Executive of Threshold, says people are facing huge uncertainty. And John Mark joins us this morning. Uh, John Mark, good morning to you. Uh, Can I suppose put it to you first off that we are where we are because of abject failure on the part of the government to to formulate a long-term fit-for-purpose strategy around this. Is that reasonable to say? Uh, good morning, Alan. Yeah, we are where we are because of, um, I think, a whole generation of, of housing policy or, or a lack of housing policy. Um, now, I know government is trying to address this through, you know, uh, strategies like Rebuilding Ireland in 2016 and Housing for All over the last couple of years, uh, which is the current plan. You have a housing commission which is discussing all of these things. But um, essentially, it goes back to about the 80s when um, social housing was sold off, um, social house building stopped happening, and successive governments um, all the way through um, neglected housing. Um, and so, um, I guess, the private rented sector and, and smaller private landlords as the solution to um, housing supply for people who are renting um, across the income spectrum. Um, and that's coming home to roost now. Uh, yeah. You know, there, there have been changes. You know, 2004 saw um, the Residential Tenancies Act, which brought in a raft of new protections and a new framework for both tenants and landlords. And we've seen a lot of changes in the last five years uh, six years in relation to, to rental um, policy. But it's that chopping and changing and that uncertainty which is part of the problem okay. too. Now you alluded to the fact there of the importance of the small landlord when it comes to providing accommodation and no one is going to argue with that. However, 
Is there not a case, therefore, for the government to incentivize landlords to stay in the game, whether it be with tax incentives or whatever? Because we know that the small landlord is running from this market in their droves, and that's creating a major problem. Small landlords um, house the vast majority of people in the private rented sector, families, individuals. Um, and they, they house the vast, vast majority, almost all of the, the people who are in the private rented sector on middle and lower incomes. Um, and so what they do has a huge bearing, obviously, on those families um, renting in the, in the sector. So in our pre-budget submission for this year, we called on government to introduce a reduction in capital gains tax that would be payable in situations where landlords were uh, planning to sell a home but where they were doing so to a local authority or an approved housing body that's a a housing association with the tenant um, living in situ Um, and that was uh, an attempt to to try and um, stop the um, the, the, the family losing the rented home when the tenant, tenant when the landlord sells. So the just to clarify, Mark, yeah. John Mark, just to clarify that, are you specifically talking about tenants who, in, who are in receipt of HAP or other financial supports? Are you talking about all tenants? Um, yeah, good question. So, I mean, a, a lot of the kind of arrangements up till now are, are just for the housing assistance payment tenants. But um, we are proposing that that measure should be available for non-HAP tenants as well because this issue of landlords selling up and then leaving the market and, and not selling to a local authority or an approved housing body but selling to you know a homeowner or, or uh, for example um, that's having a huge bearing on families losing their rent at home um, and, and not just people who are in receipt of the housing assistance payment also you know, families and, and the individuals you know across the income scale um, and, and that's one of the big reasons why you see this um, movement of people into emergency accommodation, uh, homeless accommodation, or indeed who can't even access emergency accommodation um, and, and are having to kind of sofa surf and, okay. and fall on the mercy of their, their family and friends. So here we are now again with the government, the party leaders meeting this evening to discuss what's the way forward around the eviction ban and they're just tinkering around the edges. I've heard politicians for weeks on end telling the government, do something temporarily so it will allow you to put some sort of sustainable solution in place. Sustainable solutions for this magnitude of a problem don't happen in six months or six years. It takes longer than that. And we're again just sticking a plaster on the open wound here. Yeah, this is... um like whatever's decided here probably has negative consequences um, either in the long term or the short term uh, for tenants and landlords. This over-reliance on the private rented sector in the way that we structured it with um, low levels of tenure security for, for tenants um, and then these kind of on-off um, eviction uh, bans for, for landlords mean that it has been precarious for both tenants and landlords but for, from our perspective, it's particularly precarious for for tenants because um, we're assisting them, we're advising them, uh, we're trying to protect their tenancies and prevent homelessness. Um, but right now, it's it's an impossible situation because, um, as you mentioned, um, there is this move for many small landlords to sell. Um, that you know, if that's done um, according to the, the legal procedures, that will mean the end of that tenancy and. Um, this is, as I say, a much longer term and a, and a much bigger issue, as you mentioned, about the magnitude. Um, and it requires 
massive investment in terms of supply supply of social housing because a lot of people are, if you like, inappropriately housed in the private rented sector that really should be housed in, 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 in some form of social housing. Okay. Cost rental housing, which is um, a, a very welcome development, but it is starting from you know a very low base. That needs to be ramped up. Both of those things are, are, are really, really important. And there is definitely a place for the private rented sector, but right now it doesn't seem to be working for either tenants or or some landlords. Okay, so so do you buy into Nessa Horrigan and Patrick Costello of the Green Party who are suggesting that to end the eviction ban would be a catastrophic um, move to make on the part of the government, or should we have it in play albeit with a few caveats here and there, to make it a little bit more palatable, for example, to landlords. What's your best guess of what should happen? Well, I think on balance, an extension to the ban is the is the least worst move. Um, I mean, that, we understand... Extension you, meaning what? Uh, an, sorry, an extension. If you continue the ban... For how long, though? March. Well, I mean, that, that, that's a $64,000 question. Um uh, and if it is extended, there needs to be um, a sense in which it will end. It's far from uh, uh, far from uh, ideal, um, but the, the situation facing a lot of families right now is that if that eviction ban ends at the, the end of this month, um, it's inevitable that those um, eviction notices will will be triggered. They will see out their tenancies. Um, Right now, there is very little or no um, supply of private rented housing in the market, so there's there's nowhere for them to go. And then, um, where they would traditionally have uh, tried to access um, homeless accommodation at local authority level, um, that seems to be maxed out. There seems to be uh, very little or no capacity in terms of even just the maybe emergency accommodation. Do you have any insight? Any insight into the? legality of this and if it were tested would it stand up now i've no doubt that the ag prior to when this ban was introduced was uh, tested legally but we can't keep just pushing it out indefinitely there has to be legality questions over that surely well we know that the um, ipoa have said that they will um, they will challenge any further extension I mean, I guess that's a matter for the barristers in the courts. Um, there is a discussion around whether this um, eviction ban can be extended. And, um, you know, I, I guess we'll see if it is extended. I'm, I'm sure it will be challenged and, and, and we'll see what, what happens in the courts and with the, with the legal discussions. Um, but, you know, in advocating for this, um, this extension to the ban, um, we are really mindful that um, that can have and probably will have um, consequences for um, small landlords in the future deciding to um, either not come into the market or to leave the market once the ban is lifted uh, and not come back. So we are aware of the negative consequences in terms of supply in the in the medium to longer term. But we're also really mindful of working every day with clients, with, with families, individuals who, who rent in this private rented sector and who are worried about losing their home or they know their, their um, tenancy okay. um, is ending. Well, well, they just have no options. They, have, they often have no place to go. What will the landscape look like in a year's time if we embark on a move to extend the eviction ban with caveats and allow the government to put in play some form of of strategy. How will things look in a year's time? 
it'll be a mixture of, um, I, I suppose, delayed um, tenancy terminations. Um, and, you know, we, we did argue for um, that breathing space um, some months ago. And um, we do know that there is an increase in supply generally in terms of um, overall um, house building. Um, and that applies also to, to social housing and to the cost rental um, area. So um, there will be um, more options for for renters um, in terms of the houses that are being built. But you will also see um, t- landlords, uh, small, some small landlords, continue to leave the market. So it'll be um, a, a mixed bag of things if we um, you know if we look forward one year. Mm-hmm. I think you know the, the focus on supply and the focus on um, tax treatment of landlords, where it's tied to security of tenure, where it's tied to, say, you know, 10-year leases, that needs to be looked at, and, and the capital gains tax issue that I mentioned earlier, which may assist with um, some of these um, sales. OK, when, when you look at the considerable number of moving parts that's required in order to bring a dwelling to its conclusion. You have planning, you have finance, you have so many different things. It's almost inconceivable to think that there will be the accelerated progress that's required. Now, I know that the government will throw statistics at you on numbers and say we are ahead of or we're nearly there in terms of the, the number of homes that we're building. But there's a problem with planning as well in this country in order to get things built. It seems extraordinarily slow to get things built. Um, and I'm not a planning specialist, but there seems to be still so many hurdles, so many barriers. Um, there seems to be so many costs associated um, with building. And even the discussions around, you know, state lands and building on state lands, um, that are there are issues there in terms of, you know, the, the various agencies and departments, you know, wanting the best price for those lands. So those, those don't come free either. Plus um, these kind of um, hurdles in terms of uh, even approvals for for the the, the building of social housing, um, and I, I believe it's been streamlined from what it was. But it, I, I also believe that it's it's still very it can be very very time consuming. You you also have kind of a planning process which is subject to appeal, and it's important these things are can be appealed and 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 can be opposed if they're not in the public good, but. Um, thing, you know, developments are often opposed for all sorts of reasons, um, some less honourable than others, mm. um, and that can have a bearing on, on whether um, much-needed housing, whether that's cost rental, social housing, um, owner-occupied housing, is actually built in the nature in which it's built. So you're talking um, specifically about, you know, politicians particularly who have objected to developments in their backyard. Is that what you're talking about? Well, politicians, communities, um, I think it's important that, you know, when we're looking at this wider debate about housing and supply, uh, that, you know, where things are vehemently opposed and, um, you know, the examples where the, uh, the, the, the development seems to be on balance in the public good and yet they're, they're stymied and, and, and opposed, that has a bearing on, and that can delay the, the, um, the delivery of those um, you know, developers um, sitting on land, you know, land hoarding, um, and then buying land, sitting on it, flipping it, you know, i.e., I selling it. Um, all of these things that require, um, I think, further tax um, uh, considerations in, in order mm-hmm. to bring them back into operation. And also a kind of a more pragmatic approach to, say, protected structures, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, we've a lot of existing buildings, some are, are, are either uh, vacant or 
they're, they're just underused. And okay. if we, we have a more pragmatic approach to those and we can, we can release um, supply in that way, in a way that's also sympathetic to okay, the let, architecture, all of these things need to be considered. Let me just ask you this question. I know you probably don't want to get dragged into the political sphere when it comes to this, but I'll ask the question nonetheless. Do you think there is a problem politically that we are using this as a football with one group saying, leave it to us, we can do this job and we will deliver, whereas then you have the pragmatic view saying, this is a problem, it's long term, we need to put something sustainable in place. There has to be a degree of honesty here across the political divide, you not think? And are you talking, Alan, about just... I'm just talking about political par- how political parties are using this, you know, to, to, to spin, to sell a line, to say, we can solve the problem, no problem, if we were in power. Um, I, I guess that, that there are slightly different takes on it, but I think all sides kind of agree that supply is absolutely key. Um, and um, I, but I also think, and, and this is this is very, I guess, common in our system that um, uh, politicians of all hues are, are probably trying to keep all stakeholders happy. Um, and in something as called, but being disingenuous in order to keep them happy, making promises that just just aren't sustainable or cannot be delivered. Well, I also think, uh, you know, the, the, given kind of um, party politics, you know, you, you have kind of decisions being made kind of for, for the national legislature, but you've also decisions made very much at the local. Um, and sometimes, you know, what uh, national housing policy, uh, where that's at, seems to clash or seems to be quite critical of what's happening um, at the local, um, you know, at, at councillor level, at local authority level. Um, and yet, you know, you're, you're talking about the same, you know, political parties who are kind of in operation in, in, in both, and I, and I mean both opposition and, and, and government. Um, so there's, there's, there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect there between what, what might be said kind of on the national picture mm-hmm. and then what is actually manifest or going on on the ground. Okay. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's needlessly complex for, for I guess, a, a, a place of, you know, a society of our size. And, um, and we've also a lot of players, a lot of kind of providers of, of housing. Um, and and um, that tends to make things more complicated okay. and, and, and less skilled and, Very good. than we need. We must leave it there. John Mark McCaffrey. McCaffrey, I beg your pardon, Chief Executive Threshold. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. It's just 25 minutes to 10. Public support for the Social Democrats has more than doubled following the election of Holly Kearns as the party's new leader as support for Sinn Féin has fallen to its lowest level in 18 months. The latest Ireland Thinks poll for the Sunday Independent has found that within days of her election, Ms Kearns who entered electoral politics less than four years ago has become the second most popular party leader in the country behind Tónis the Micheál Martin. Uh, we're joined by Sinn Féin's Rory Amurakou from the Louth constituency to discuss this and other matters. But first, um, good morning, uh, Rory. I want to talk to you first about the meeting that the party leaders are having this evening around the eviction ban. ban. What does Sinn Féin want? What Sinn Féin wants is that we would have continuity of this ban in the sense we are still in an emergency situation and the idea was we would have an emergency situation in which would give us breathing space obviously to deal with certain sets of circumstances including supply and them other issues we are no further on so it's very hard to see how you could lift this ban at this point in time okay. and that's not that's not to say you don't look at you know particular anomalies that are being spoken about we always said that you might uh, we had actually proposed an amendment to the legislation initially and um, that you would look at the point of if an owner 
was possibly facing homelessness and that could be somebody who was returning home from having worked abroad and that there would need to be leeway allowed in the Okay, well, Rory, what about the small landlord who finds themselves being pinched by increased interest rates? They are in hock to the bank, see an opportunity to cash out on a property that has been perhaps loss-making for them and they want to try and make their financial situation and their financial plight a little bit better. Surely they should be allowed to sell the property. Well, there's a considerable amount of people who are considering that anyway. They say whatever changes are made won't necessarily change that set of circumstances. We really need to look at the idea of selling with in situ um, in situ tenancies and um, that we would like I've heard actually the likes of Focus Ireland and Threshold for a long time speak about the fact that there needed to be well, first of all protections given to landlords and um, but they said within that that there would have to be protections to tenants particularly in relation to, to tenure and that we needed a professionalisation across the board and that was rights for all look there's been a lot of talk about making it easier for uh, local authorities to actually buy, um, let's say, houses that are being sold with someone in a half tenancy. Yeah, just just on that and point, Rory, and I'm, I'll, I'll let you finish. I just need clarification from you because threshold here this morning, and I put the question to John Mark McCafferty about the notion of selling a dwelling to the local authority. Would that include private tenants as well as HAP when it comes to the Sinn Féin view on it? Would you agree that both are just HAP? Yes. Yes. No, okay. no, 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 no. We, 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 right. need to look, we need to look at that. But all I was saying is government said they had made it easier, but we know there are anomalies. We know it's not straightforward in getting, um, in getting local authorities to purchase HAP tenancies. And the minister himself spoke about the fact that they were going, they were going to look at the possibility of those who are not in have tenancies, but we, we need this to get beyond the point of looking at and we'd actually need to see some element of delivery okay. to ensure we're not two, dealing with anomalies. Two questions for you. Number one, you said there's a degree of breathing space required on the part of government in order to be able to put in play some solution to this. How much breathing space do they need? And realistically, what is the long-term strategy in terms of delivering something sustainable? How long will it take? And look here, we we all know we all know the difficulties that are that are in play here. No, but you know, Ron, like no, come no, on no, to, no, to suggest no, 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 for to suggest for a moment that an extension of the uh, eviction ban will give them breathing space to put something concrete in place is madness. Well, if you're going to extend, it's very difficult to see how you're at least going to extend to the end of the year. But the fact is, we have a huge amount of people who are coming to us at this point in time who are facing uh, eviction in no-fault evictions. I am incredibly worried at a point in time when obviously though the numbers in emergency accommodation, the numbers of homeless are going through the roof um, with the protections that exist at this point in time. I am absolutely afraid of what will happen. I am saying we have no choice. And that's before we get into the discussions of actually capping um, rent prices uh, and ensuring that we could put money back into the hands of the people who are actually renting to a greater degree, you know, like than the tax credit that the government have at this point in time. Like, they are necessary moves that need to be mm-hmm. made. But, like, until the point in time that the state really lifts this game in relation to the delivery of social uh, housing, affordable uh, mortgages, and cost rental mortgages. And even when we're talking about purchases, 
Um, I, I know that there is, I think, Tannery House in Dublin, where if we had some sort of leeway in relation to a local authority or an approved housing body, if they if they were able to buy that entire complex and you would be dealing with a considerable amount of, let's okay. say, cost, rental, tenancies, because yeah. those people wouldn't necessarily be in half tenancies. There is a solution to a problem that is facing Okay. Look, Rory, I'm conscious that we asked you to come on to talk about something else, but before we get to that, I just want one final question to you uh, in relation to this, and this is the the role of the small landlord, who has been uh, put up there as a pariah for many years, but nonetheless, they have an important role to play when it comes to providing accommodation for the government. Are you of the view that we need to look at the role of the landlord in the context of providing them with incentivization in order to stay in the game because any landlord you will talk to if they have an opportunity they are gone because it's not a good business model for them do you agree that they should get some sort of incentive a considerable amount of them are probably not in a great financial space most likely those people are going to leave and leave anyway that's what the ex and a considerable amount of expert reports and whatever have said so that, that is just a fact that we're probably going to have to get out ahead of. I have no difficulty in relation to looking at any factors that might actually stabilise those people. But like you say, for a considerable amount of them, uh, unintended, uh, these are the unintended consequences of someone maybe taking a taking a notion of buying... An, uh, as as an part of their pension. Somebody receive, yeah, or even a case of two people who move in together and have a house and at the time maybe prices weren't great and they said we'll consider holding it on for a considerable amount of time and at times it ended up being a complete and utter probably nuisance for them um, but look the, the fact is people in those set of circumstances are probably going to leave anyway I have no difficulty in this us looking you know at certain factors that could possibly you know facilitate them to stay in but like long term this doesn't look like it for those people it's a long term um that there is a long term solution most of them are going to make their journey out of this okay uh, let's talk about that opinion poll in the sunday indo uh, of yesterday Sinn fein i think it's down about 2% to 29 and the headlines are Sinn fein that lowest ebb in 18 months i'm sure they are trembling in the art corlia uh, uh, today when they see those results i mean 29% is quite quite the figure to have for any political party. But the question is, can Sinn Féin monopolise on that figure and have sufficient and adequate candidates available to stand in the next election in order to maximise the number of seats? The last time out, they could have had a lot more seats, but they slightly messed it up when it came to candidates. Well, we we didn't run enough candidates. We yeah. probably didn't expect the the fabulous election we got. We we caught a wind. We have maintained a considerable amount of that wind. I don't think there's a political party that would be overly concerned in Ireland if they got a poll result of 29%. No. Now, in saying that, would I much prefer that that was the last time I was on talking about 31 and people were talking about our Sinn Féin under pressure? About three days later, we had another poll that said we were on 35%. Like, you're getting a huge amount of variations on the basis of margin of error. Which is 2.9%. It's usually around the three marks. So it's really, you know, as we were when it comes to Sinn Féin and most of the other political parties. But nonetheless, we see the emergence of the Social Democrats under a new leader, Holly Kearns. Now, you would expect to get some sort of lift when you have a new leader, a new outlook and a new direction. Are they a force, do you think, to be watch? Are Sinn Féin watching them from the point of view of maybe at some point becoming 
slightly threatening politically. No, Sinn Féin, like every other political party, will have to play its own game. That's exactly what we need to do. Um, And you're in the middle of what is probably a phony war in real terms. People don't see that an election is necessarily round the corner. Um, It's only when an election kicks off that you will get real movement. And again, we can talk about snapshot and time and margins of errors, but I think most people operate on the basis of they like the polls that suit them and they will sometimes disregard the polls that they don't like. Yes, the Social Democrats have got a boost, a definite a definite boost. They have a new young leader and in fairness, she's uh, hit the ground running. Um, but, but the fact is, they would need to be able to deliver that on a constituency basis. And with polls, it's not literally one poll you watch. You have to see that there is a pattern that emerges. As any of the political the political mandarins will tell you, the only poll that matters is the poll on polling day itself, on the day of a general election. And the, reali- the, delivers the, results. the reality is when you're in opposition, when, when you are faced with a financial crisis, cost of living crisis, homeless crisis, when you are delivering the sort of messages that Sinn Féin are delivering and other opposition parties, your polling numbers can only go one way and that's up. It's about being able to tell the public you can deliver if you're in power, but when you get into power, it's a different different proposition. Oh, I get that. I would also say, like even from opposition, that ourselves and other opposition parties have pushed this government into a place where they have looked at as much as we mightn't have chosen their choices in relation to, let's say, the cost of living actions. But I'm fairly sure that the actions that have been taken recently by a government that's made up of Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and, and the Greens, nobody would have anticipated what they had done. Um, and I don't think they would have done it, only that they were pushed by opposition, okay. you know, given the set of circumstances that we're in. Look, Sinn Féin will have enough candidates um, to do real business at the next election. Sinn Féin will, like every other political party, we will enter the campaign we will put in front of the people our solutions in relation to the housing crisis, the health crisis, and every and the cost of living crisis, and every other issue that's in front of us. And a considerable amount of people have completely got absolutely fed up with this particular government. Don't see them as out of touch. Okay, and and so ends the party political broadcast. We've got to leave it there, Rory. we got to leave it there. That, Rory. We gotta leave it there. That, but here, I, would still, I am still very hopeful... Sinn Féin can deliver, okay. um, can deliver a government of change and Mary Lou Macdonald as T-shirt and we can improve this day. Right, Rory, we're gone. We leave it there. But, yeah, thanks for joining us. Rory O'Marraco, Sinn Féin uh, TD for Louth and East Mead. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. If you want to contact us this morning, 86 658 Minister of State and Fianna Fáil TD Thomas Burns said legislation regarding windfall tax on energy companies will be brought in over the next few weeks and it will apply to revenue made last year. Speaking uh, over the weekend, he also said he's not in favour of disconnections being allowed while people are dealing with super normal bills. And two leader, Pather Tobin, said there's no way you could get rid of that moratorium while people are trying to heat their homes and keep the lights on. Pather Tobin joins us this morning. Mother, uh, morning, uh, Pather. Um, I... I'm at a loss to try and understand why it's taking so long for the government to move on energy companies with this windfall tax when we have been talking about it for so long. What's the delay? It's, it's, it's really hard to understand. So we've been talking about this windfall tax since last June now. And since we've been talking about it in this country, Spain, Italy, Greece, Romania, Britain, Hungary, a whole host of other European countries have implemented the windfall tax 
and are harvesting mil- uh, billions of euros out of that windfall tax uh, and helping their citizens with it. Um, I personally, you know, um, believe that there are some probably within the Green Party who think that energy prices remaining high is not necessarily a bad thing, that it will reduce consumption uh, of energy if the prices remain high. Um, and, you know, I think that the government needs to come out and answer that if that's the question. Because we've had, especially in Mead, we've had a large number of older people. Jerry Clark, their pensioner from Navin, um, came, went on the media recently. He had a bill uh, over the winter for €1,600. Uh, a woman uh, 100 years old in Trim, a bill for two months, €1,000. And we know that about 30% of the population, about nearly a third of the people who who are listening to your radio show at the moment, are living in fuel poverty. Um, families are spending roughly now four grand a year on average. Okay. Um, but but you've got, you got to accept, though, Paddy, that the government did intervene when it came to providing them with some sort of security around energy bills in terms of the payments that we have been in receipt of since this yeah. cost of living crisis. So the government have provided uh, energy uh, credits, uh, uh, for, especially for electricity bills. But I've put in a, a significant number of parliamentary questions which show that actually the government have been also quids in in terms of this crisis. So the, the amount of VAT that's been collected from fuel and uh, electricity is actually 28% up over the last year. So this price crisis has actually increased the level of VAT that the government themselves are taking. If you add all the increases in VAT receipts, if you add the, the increase in carbon taxes, and the increase in profits that uh, Electric Ireland have made, that that's more money than the government gave back in electric uh, electricity credits. Okay. So they're taking from one pocket of yours and they're giving back to another, which doesn't make sense at all. And the real frustration is here. While people are suffering so much, all of these energy companies are actually making massive, massive profits. So we know, obviously, that you know, the ESB saw its profits surge to 400 million just for the, the last six, well, the first six months of last year. Board Gosh, its parent company, saw its profit surge to 3.5 billion euros. Uh, Energia saw its profit surge to 112 uh, million euros last year. The Corrib Fields profits are estimated to have tripled there. So it's really hard to understand when you have. Yeah, you but know, these are businesses, Pather. They're in the business of making profits. They are, and profits are, are a healthy thing, and nobody wants to stop businesses making profits. If businesses don't make profits, they don't function. Yeah. Well, explain, can you explain to us, just for the benefit of those who aren't really too familiar with what the government is proposing when it comes to a windfall tax, what exactly do they mean in relation to a windfall tax when it comes to electricity providers? Okay, so uh, the idea of a windfall comes from the idea that, you know, something exceptional happens which pushes up profits to such a, a, a big state. So the war in Ukraine was an, is an exceptional occurrence. What it's done is it's created massive volatility in the energy market, and the, the electricity and the energy companies are making massive profits out of it, while people are hurting um, in, in a big way. So what the governments are looking at at the moment is that there's two options. There's one that they could create a, what's called a solidarity contribution. So therefore, they take the average profit between 2018 and 2021, and then they use that as a baseline. And if profits exceed that average profit by about 20%, they can then tax the remaining profit at a rate of about 50 to 75%, which means that those profits that are happening because of this exceptional situation and are hurting people as a result, 
um, can actually be brought back into the, the, the state coffers and, and that money can help people. Or what they can do is very simply is that they can cap revenues at a certain rate per megawatt hour. So they can cap, you know, that electricity companies can earn 180 euros per megawatt hour. And then after that, there's a tax, a high tax placed on that. And that means that the companies can still make their profits, can still do well for themselves. But the excess, the exceptional amounts that are happening because of this crisis are ploughed back into people's pockets to help them pay. Okay, it also raises the other argument or the other conversation that we need to have, and that is alternative energy sources in relation to wind, uh, wave, or whatever, and move away from the 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 high cost of energy yeah. produced at the moment through coal and fossil fuels. Yeah, so one of the reasons why prices are so high is because we have this really dysfunctional market. This, the, the, the price of electricity is actually coupled with the price of gas. So it means that even if you produce electricity from wind or from solar or from oil or from coal or any other source, you have to pay the gas price for it. Um, and what we've been calling for is the government to decouple the, those two prices. Other countries have done it. This government still hasn't managed to do it. They're still sitting on their hands uh, after all this time. So the idea would be that, you know, um, if you produce electricity by, by, by renewable means, yes, again, you make a decent, healthy profit. You pay your, you pay your staff, you pay your dividends, but the price isn't, you know, extortionately high uh, that, that it would be for gas. But we do have to invest more in, in offshore energy as well. It really frustrates me that we had... The Minister for Energy, um, um, Eamon Ryan, recently bring all of the ministers uh, for the environment and energy over to Ireland recently to talk about offshore wind. And in 20 years, we've only built six wind turbines off the coast of Ireland. Now, we've been hearing so many times that Ireland is nearly like the Saudi Arabia of wind energy. And yet, in that 20 years, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Greens have only built six wind turbines off the coast of this country. Okay, Padder, I'm I'm running out of time on this, but I want, if possible, for you to try and give us some sort of insight into when customers can expect the bills to go down. Are we talking weeks, months, what? And here's the danger, and and this is the truth, like um, when the price of gas rose, the price of electricity tracked it very fast. Within weeks, each time there were increases in electricity. The really strange and the really worrisome aspect about this is there's a, a, every chance, if the government doesn't intervene, that the price is going to fall very, very slowly, maybe about 10% in the space of a year, despite the fact that it went up nearly 100% in the space of a few weeks. So the government has to intervene. They have to hold the energy companies to account. Otherwise, those who are in low incomes or the elderly are going to suffer significantly okay. over the next year. Padre Tobin of Aintu, thank you for joining us. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. Now, I'm sure you have heard at some point this morning a disturbing story. It's in light of, I suppose, a practice that is becoming more common in recent months and years when it comes to GAA officials officiating at matches at underage level, particularly. And the latest incident was of an alleged assault taking place at a minor hurling league game in South Dublin that was on um, Sunday 
where an umpire was allegedly set upon by at least two people as the match was being played at Sean Moore Park in uh, Sandy Mount. Now, that individual, as we understand it, was taken uh, away for treatment for what was described as a serious blood injury to the head. Let's talk to Peter Fitzpatrick, chairman of the Louth County Board, um, on this issue not specifically this case, but the problems that the GAA are facing when it comes to attacks on officials. Morning, Peter. Um, This is quite shocking when you read the details, is it not? Yeah, Alan, like like you can tell, Alan, I'm basically going what I hear in the media. Like uh, uh, an an umpire was supposed to allege allegedly assaulted by two individuals there yesterday and he's in hospital. Uh, This is not acceptable from from, from any point of view. Like in fairness, the GEA has uh, has done an awful lot of good work over the last number of years. Even take for example in County Loud, we've approximately two thousand matches every year, and we depend solely on the referees and umpires to to officiate these games. If we hadn't got them, the things wouldn't take place. And like, if, like for example, my weekend was taken up as like last Friday night, I was in Thurman Second, a couple of hundred people at the dinner land. Last Saturday morning, I was in the DKIT, those eight and ten year olds, four or five hundred people. I then on, on Saturday evening I was in Jordan there was a rally center dance and then yesterday in Aldi. Yeah, but but it is a problem, Peter. It's a problem that needs to be addressed and taken seriously. I mean, I can recount so many stories about officials, one in particular which involved a referee being locked in the boot of a car. Uh, Alan, Alan, first of all, I condemn it. There's no place for violence whatsoever, Alan. But I'm just saying that there is a lot of good working on at the moment. Is I was in Co Park two weeks ago with Larry McCarthy, the president of the GAA. And, and the, the situation now is, is, is zero tolerance. It's not going to be accepted. It, it, it has creeped in a lot over a lot of underage football matches over the last number of years. You go to a game of football and maybe 10s or 12s or 14-year-olds are playing. And in fairness to parents, it's a great place for families to gather together. It just takes one bad individual to start the whole thing up. The problem I find, I find Alan, is that example is when it starts off with the verbal abuse, then it also leads them to a physical abuse. And I said here the word zero tons, we have to stop yeah. it. Now, it's now you, easy. you, Peter, as well as I know, having played the game, like it, it's rough and tumble out there on the pitch. They take no prisoners, and that's fair enough. It's a good physical game, and there's a bit of banter between players or whatever. But it strikes me that the problem here is from the sideline. As I said, the, uh, the GA, like, like, like all other sports at the moment, has really taken off. Like Ireland is, is a sporting nation, and like you know, whether 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 it's soccer, Gaelic, rugby, tennis, and no matter what, like, people do really take a very. Ireland takes the game very, very competitive, and and the, the good thing is the GA has launched over the last number of years. Like uh, it's a very important that, that everybody participates in sports, and we we, we started off now, especially underage games, from under eight, tens, and twelves. With the stop the situation of maybe presenting trophies, and it's very important. If you have a panel of maybe twenty five or thirty of at the moment, it's very important that all kids get a game, a game, yeah. a game of football. But, but you know, what happened to the you know the initiative many years ago, which was introduced by the GAA, was it give respect? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Like to get respect, it doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, well, that, that, that's your opinion, Alan. My opinion is, Alan... Well, I mean, it's Alan. there. The evidence of it is there this morning for the latest incident which occurred at, at a GAA underage game. Well, as I said, Alan, take Lloyd, the smallest county in Ireland. We, we, we do an average of maybe 2,000 games a year. I know the last number of years, Alan, it's it, very minimum. But I will agree with you. The verbal abuse has, 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 has crept into the game. It's something that the GAA wants to stamp out. Uh, like, like for example in, in, in Loud like we, we have a county board meetings and uh, every every time we have a county board meeting we address the situation of, of the of proper code of, of conduct and we are really really are trying to do our okay. best and I, I'm sorry I, I do I do play with parents to go it's great to see your, your, your son your daughter whoever is to play a bit of football but it's very very important you can't shout and you can't give any verbal abuse and they're right there trying to do their best there's good footballers and there's bad footballers there's different grades of footballers but the bottom line is we are a family in the GEA. We want to see everybody participate together. And we will, as a GEA, stamp out the violence. And, and okay, and let, let me just ask you, and I know this was something um, back in the day that I was involved in on the periphery of, and that was a notion where we should ban spectators, parents, from vocalising support either way on the sideline during any game. Would you advocate that as silence at the sideline during games from from spectators and parents? Yeah, we, we, we're trying to introduce that in loud completely there at the moment. There should be no way that parents should be shouting or giving abuse to the sideline. I'd be 200% behind that. Okay, great stuff. Peter Fitzpatrick, Chairman of the Loud County Board, thank you for joining us. And let me just say um, one thing. We're, we're talking about the GAA when it comes to abuse on the sideline. I can recount any number of stories in relation to sporting activities outside the GAA, including soccer, where I have witnessed firsthand appalling verbal abuse and in one particular case, physical abuse against a referee and officials at a junior game. So I don't know what is happening, but it seems to be permeating throughout sport and it's not specifically the GAA that it's happening at. And it's something that I'd be interested to hear from anybody if they want to give me a call on 086-1800-658 if they had a similar experience of that. 
Now, nearly 60,000 people fleeing the war in Ukraine have been given housing in Ireland. The government said nearly 20,000 asylum seekers from other countries are also in state housing. It means there are now 80,000 refugees and asylum seekers in state accommodation. That's up from around 7,500 7, this time last year. Well, earlier I spoke to uh, John Lannan, who's CEO of Thuris, and asked him, was it reasonable to say that we're in the chaos we are because of the lack of government vision? Yes, I think there was certainly a need for many months now for more long-term, sustainable, joined-up thinking and planning around this. Um, Government press statement at the end of last week now refers to them stepping up action to maximise the pace and the scale of delivery on their accommodation strategy for refugees. And this has to be seen as a welcome move. You know, it's several months since they themselves spoke about moving from an emergency response to a more sustainable approach. We hope that we're seeing the start of that now. But it's a little bit too little too late when you consider, notwithstanding the crisis that we were facing with asylum seekers in this country prior to the Ukrainian invasion by Russia, we have how many? Close to 70,000 refugees from Ukraine and Ireland who we can't accommodate and won't be able to accommodate long-term or sustainably. Yes, indeed. You know, the stark realities of where we're at at the moment are quite worrying. Um, You know, people are continuing to arrive in Ireland seeking um, international protection or from Ukraine seeking what's called temporary protection. Um, There's an over-reliance on hotel rooms and emergency accommodation. Um, Many of those emergency accommodation um, places are not fit for purpose. Um, a Minister Joe O'Brien confirmed in the last day or two that there'll be a problem in the coming weeks when a number of hotels that are currently accommodating refugees will end their contracts with the government. So um, I guess that the fact that the Taoiseach's department has been developing an overall response, and so we hear now that they have been doing that um, for the UK Ukrainian accommodation crisis, is positive. Most reasonable individuals John will understand that we have a moral obligation in order to house those who are fleeing persecution, fleeing war or whatever it may be. But does there come a time where we have to actually look at what we can realistically do to make their lives better and at some point say there's no more room at the inn? Well, as you say, we have moral obligations. We also have legal obligations under the EU's Temporary Protection Directive when it comes to people from Ukraine. But under um, our own International Protection Act and the Refugee Convention, when it comes to people fleeing from persecution, from war, from torture in other parts of the world, I think we can do a lot more. Um, the 20 million that the, the government has um, now said that they're making available is for a proof of concept intended to deliver 400 beds on a number of sites around the country. That obviously isn't nearly enough, but we hope that that will lead to the releasing of greater money into a strategy that will help us to be able to respond to the arrival of people. Because, you know, the wars, the persecution, the torture, they're not going to stop around the world. People are still, unfortunately, going to need to seek international protection, have to go to great risks in order to to do that. People will continue to come to Ireland. So we just have to look at how we can 
accommodate them when, you know, get the reception right, get the accommodation right and get the integration right then after that. Now, we're also, I suppose, walking a very tight, tight rope in that we're balancing it with the crisis in student accommodation, the crisis for people looking for homes to buy, those in the rental sector, and now we have the problem with refugees. Surely you cannot be that confident or optimistic that we can reach a point where that long-term solution can come into play in the short to medium term. There's no doubt that um, the crisis that we've got at the moment when it comes to providing accommodation for those 80,000 people that you mentioned that have come from Ukraine and other parts of the world comes on top of an existing housing crisis. We've got um, challenges in relation to access to other services around the country, particularly health services in in many parts of the country. So I think we, we need to ensure that we get all of that right. There is a need for more social and for more affordable housing. But I think we've also got to recognise those obligations that we have and to recognise that we, we can do more. And it was interesting that um, over the, the weekend as well that we, we also had um, a report that the, the Minister for, for Children is considering a new HSE-style agency is called to manage the state's long-term response to the migration crisis to help integrate refugees into communities. And and that really is needed now because we found that, you know, we know that if we look back over the years that um, Ireland has, and the people of Ireland have by and large been quite open, quite welcoming of refugees. I think we've been strained um, over the last year with the increasing numbers, the fact that we've already got crises around housing in, in the country. But the goodwill still exists. Um, what we've got to do is to ensure that communities um, understand um, what's happening when new um, people are coming to, to live in, in their communities, but also that communities are properly resourced to be able to accommodate more people. I want to touch on that, maybe expand about out a little bit more on it, and I think you're probably you know, referring to the rise of what we would consider to be right-wing views towards refugees coming into this country. And I think it's important to emphasise that they, they are in a very small minority, but we are hearing their voices being amplified, perhaps to a greater degree than they should be. Does that concern you, that there is that right rise, albeit at a small, a small scale? It, it is um, worrying. There's no doubt about that. We've seen in, in many cases that um, protests are being organised or being hijacked by far-right elements and the anger and the frustration that people have with lack of services is being misdirected against refugees and, and particularly against asylum seekers. And it is quite worrying that that could lead to, um, you know, to, to physical violence on top of the, you know, the, the types of abusive language that we've seen being uttered outside some direct provision centres. I think we've also, as you say, got to recognise that the numbers gathering at those um, small protests are tiny 
compared to the 50,000 people that took to the streets a couple of weeks ago to say that refugees are welcome here in Ireland. Um, and, and that goodwill was shown you know, on, on the streets in Dublin. But um, we do need to treat the situation we're, we're in seriously now as an emergency. We need that um, sustainable um, response from government. Um, we need them to get the their communication right, to get the community engagement piece right. There are great um, community organisations all over the country that just need to be supported, need to be resourced in order to ensure that um, you know, those communities remain cohesive, remain open and remain welcome in as well. And, 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 what, that they face. and what is the danger of not keeping those individuals informed, updated and you know, brought in to the negotiation and the process around integration with refugees into communities? Do you fear that, you know, at the worst we could be going down the road of Enoch Powell, rivers of blood sort of speech or, or, or hate speech? Yeah, the, the dangers is that um, people start listening to the lies and to the misinformation that's been spread, particularly on social media, in relation to asylum seekers and, and refugees. And that rather than, you know, remaining with the, the understanding and the sympathetic response that's needed to ensure people who have been traumatised by displacement, by war, by persecution, um, are provided with protection here in Ireland. But instead of that, there's a danger that the, you know, the, the lies about people, um, you know, be, being somehow illegal or, or somehow um, unentitled to be here start to spread. I mean, we have to remember that everybody who comes here seeking protection is legally entitled to do so, whether they have... Um, papers or a passport with them or not when they make that application. Okay. The nature of the nature of having to flee from war and persecution is that you don't have time to get the papers in order you need. Very good. John Lannan, CEO of theirs. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. As you have already heard in the news, a man has died and another has been seriously injured following a house fire in County Louth. Gardaí and emergency services attended the scene in Terman Fecken in the early hours of the morning. Eamon Wolfe is the Chief Fire Officer with Louth Fire and Rescue Services and joins us on the line. Eamon, uh, good morning. Thanks for taking our call. Perhaps you could give us um, some of the background to this in terms of when you were contacted and what you wh- what you witnessed when you arrived. Hello, Alan. Uh, look, I'd firstly like, to, on, on my own behalf, and now County Council and the Fire Service behalf, uh, express my condolences to the family of um, the poor man who's deceased, uh, and also hope that the second person makes a full recovery. just want to say that at the outset. Um, at about 2 a.m. this morning, um, the Fire Service received multiple calls of a serious house fire uh, on Seapoint in Terminal Second, um, and we turned out a total of five fire planes and um, and two uh, and a hydraulic platform to the incident. Um, and it was clear that there was a person inside of the building, and um, the, the BA teams were sent in, and uh, a person was rescued uh, from the building, uh, which was very much on fire, very large fire. Um, the crew tried to uh, perform CPR, tried to resuscitate the casualty, um, but uh, this didn't succeed, and the, the casualty was transferred to, to 
Joe had a hospital that was pronounced deceased, um, you know, shortly after. Um, the second person uh, who was in the fire uh, was transferred to draw the hospital, was in a serious condition at the time. And as I say, I hope that that uh, person does make a recovery. Uh, that's, that's, that's the update. And it was about okay. two o'clock this morning. Um, it, it is early stages in relation to an investigation around how perhaps this particular fire started. Do you have any insight into that yet? No, uh, you see, the problem is that it was such a, 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 a large fire, the house was completely gutted and even trying to ascertain what started the fire will be difficult. I know, I understand the Garda forensics team is on site and they, that would be their priority. Okay, and just finally before I let you go, Eamon, just simple advice to people, you know, when it comes to plugging out things, fires, smoking in the house, that sort of thing. Oh yeah, uh, well, it's the the message that we messages that we try to get across constantly to have a working smoke alarm or even interconnected smoke alarms in the house. Keep the doors closed at night, uh, plug everything out, and make sure the fire is out um, and uh, it shouldn't be smoking okay. in. in- in, in the bedroom either that's, that's the other advice. we leave it there Eamon Wolf, Chief Fire Officer with Loud Fire and Rescue Services thank you for joining us this morning now if you want to contact us we're on 0861800658 Gardaí attended 54,000 domestic abuse cases in 2022 amid continued increases over the years crime stats released for last year last week showed an alarming rise in sexual assault cases sex offences also increased by over 5% largely because of an increase in reported rapes and sexual assaults. Reported sex crime against children were down. Sarah Benson, a CEO of Women's Aid, and joins us this morning. Sarah, thanks for taking our call. Um, they are pretty alarming figures. Any reason why they are continuing to increase? Hi, good morning. Um, well, I think um, the Gardaí put a particular note in relation to the sexual offences um, uh, numbers in particular but we have earlier data from the Gardaí on the domestic violence uh, numbers from last year for example and they, they echo a similar um, uh, note of kind of nuance when we look at these numbers and so we don't necessarily believe that this is showing an increased prevalence of domestic abuse um, although I would stress that we have an absolute epidemic of domestic abuse already so uh, we have one in four women in this country uh, being subjected to abuse from a current or former partner um, and uh, uh, about one in seven men um, so we already have a serious problem but what we, we hope this is indicative of is that actually the Gardaí themselves have made uh, policing of domestic abuse a significant priority starting with the, the COVID uh, pandemic and and increasing um, uh, year on year since then and they were starting to see increased numbers of reporting because they actually initiated a number of proactive mm. policing initiatives. So we hope that this means that there are more um, people disclosing uh, and reaching out to the Gardaí and, and certainly that would mirror our experience. Women's Aid runs the National Domestic Violence Helpline and a range of face-to-face services and we're also the gateway to all of the other uh, local independent refuges and support services around the country through the helpline and we know from our own services and those of our colleagues is that demand is just huge, huge for services so it's no surprise that it would also be the same for the Guardian. Now when we talk about the 54,000 domestic abuse cases in 2022 that the Guardian attended, can we separate separate out from that? There's the physical side of things and there's the psychological side of things. 
is the psychological side of things necessarily encompassed in those particular figures when it comes to abuse? There, there, there will be. Uh, now, I can't speak to, to those um, those numbers, mm. but we did welcome last year that the National Protective uh, Services Bureau, in conjunction with the, the um, experts in, in gathering statistical data in the Gardaí, brought out... Um, uh, new and much more detailed data looking at uh, where there was domestic violence, uh, not just in terms of call-outs, you know, where perhaps it was maybe a breach of a, a protective order, but also other kinds of uh, criminal behaviour, but which had a domestic violence element by which they meant it was being perpetrated by a current or former intimate partner or family member. So we can see that it cuts across all kinds of behaviours, including, of course, um, uh, assault, but also you know coercive control, which is now uh, has been a crime since the very start of 2019, is being increasingly better understood and often will not include physical abuse, but really acute controlling, ha- uh, harassing, intimidating, isolating. Uh, on that, Sarah, but perhaps you could just delve a little bit deeper into coercive control and talk more about what it is, because I have a very good understanding of it for, for um, reasons of of. Um, doing research, but one would not expect what we would consider to be normal couples where a problem of course of control exists, but it does exist there and it may exist amongst people in your peer group that you know amongst married couples and partners as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's always good to take the opportunity just to explain what it is um, because as I say, it is now a criminal offence, but also Coercive control really describes what is the kind of beating heart of a, of a of an abusive relationship. Um, and so, instead of thinking about incidents like you know uh, a physical assault uh, or an act of criminal damage, the way we often think about crimes, we need to think about coercive control as something that happens over a period of time, um, and that involves a pattern of behaviours, and that can um, have the, the consequences of one person basically coercively uh, or controllingly um, reducing uh, their partner's um, sense of self-esteem, sense of self, ability to uh, make proactive and empowered choices in their lives, up to and including, uh, unfortunately, physical abuse, which can sometimes be fatal abuse. So it's patterns of behaviours, and and some of those behaviours, if you take them on their own, wouldn't be crimes, but it's when you put them together with all of the other behaviours, you have coercive control. So it could be you know, monitoring somebody's whereabouts, uh, isolating them from family and friends, uh, taking increasing control over the, the finances um, or using economic abuse to degrade and humiliate somebody. It can be watching their behaviours. It can be accessing the passwords on their phones. It can be uh, dictating who they can and can't speak with, what they wear. Uh, so basically, um, you know, through coercion, which can be through threatening behaviour, intimidating behaviour, or controlling behaviour, which is that uh, kind of insidious um, making yourself a part of everybody, uh, your partner's every waking moment, um, knowing where they are, knowing who they're speaking to. And, and what women would say to us is that the impact of that is, you know, I remember one woman saying to me, um, he doesn't have to be beside me. He doesn't even have to be in the same country as me. But he's in my head every minute of every day. And every decision I make, every thought that passes through my head is... Uh, filtered through what's he going to say, what's he going to do, how's he going to react if I, if I, if I you know, make this choice or that choice. Now, um, it, it comes back then to the question of at what point do we start to educate, particularly men, around relationships, the manner in which they treat women, the manner in which they treat uh, 
everybody. And it goes back to a point of where does it start? Does it start in school? Does it start at home? Is it a combination of both? Because it has to come stem from somewhere. You don't suddenly wake up and you are, you know, coercively controlling someone or you're physically abusing somebody. So where does it begin and how do we ensure that it doesn't happen or we bring down the numbers? We would say it starts on, on day one of, of, a, of a child's life, really, because when we look at domestic, sexual and gender-based violence, it is inextricably linked with issues of gender inequality and also kind of historical, very, um, you know, um, restrictive stereotypes, particularly around gender and, you know, masculine and feminine. And, um, and what we need is uh, education for our young people from their very earliest moments around respect and equality and uh, indifference and and that then sets the groundwork or the the foundational piece for when we get into relationships and that can be friendships and then later intimate relationships is what is considered healthy uh, behaviour, what are considered healthy relationships. And so like Women's Aid have our Two Into You project, which has its own uh, dedicated website, which is just twointoyou.ie. And that's for younger people, um, primarily 18 to 25. But also we have found increasingly that uh, individuals under 18 um, go and they will do the, the, we have a relationship quiz there. And it's about flagging what is, you know, a potential red flag in a relationship, what is a really healthy behaviour in a relationship, and then what is a serious red flag which could be pointing to abuse. And more and, and more often than not, particularly young men are going online and taking their guidance, as it were, or their moral compass from individuals who should not be giving advice around how women should be treated or how relationships should begin. It, and that, that surely has an impact on what is happening on these figures. It absolutely does. We need to be able to encourage honest conversations between uh, boys and each other, but also boys and girls and other young folk, um, just to be able to see and hear each other in ways that are not uh, influenced by really toxic, negative, kind of hyper-masculine um, and, and very, very misogynistic messaging from the likes of, I mean, Andrew Tate is, is, yeah. the, is the kind of the one who really springs to mind. But the fact is, he is just somebody who's enormously prolific and out there, but he is not alone, unfortunately. And so um, we need to, uh, you know, kind of create structures and environments for young people to be able to have these conversations, to learn and reflect, um, rather than learning things on TikTok and places like that and pushing back. Because, you know, this is about us creating the next generation of uh, young people who hopefully, you know, that we won't see the level of prevalence of domestic and sexual violence. But unfortunately, we are... You know, while we're making gains in some areas, we are seeing things like, you know, that kind of very misogynistic incel uh, messaging is is weaving its way across uh, the social media networks. And also with that, then, you know, the, the prolific access to pornography on mobile phones and what that is teaching young people about sex uh, when porno- pornography does not represent sex and it does not represent healthy sexual relationships. So, you know. The internet is great um, in many respects, but there's a lot out there that we need to be very vigilant to um, in, in order to try and you know, support our young people to make healthy choices um, uh, for and each other and, and for themselves. And in this conversation, we talk about men, but what about women? Do they feel safe today in Ireland in relationships with young men? Do they feel that there's constantly on the watch out for, well, is this right? Is this wrong? Should I be doing this or should I be doing something else? 
Well, Women's Aid in 2020 conducted research because there is no prevalent research on young people's um, experiences of intimate relationship abuse. There are some um, good, it's very troubling uh, studies done in terms of sexual harassment and sexual uh, abuse by colleagues like the Right Crisis Network and others. But what we found is by the age of 25 in this country, um, one in five young women will have experienced abuse from a current or former partner and 51% of that group will have experienced that below the age of 18. Um, and that then compares to one in 11 young men. So it's it's still very, very prevalent. And what we are seeing is very concerning, uh, kind of touching on my previous comments there, is the, the normalisation of certain behaviours, um, you know, in terms of sharing of intimate images is becoming something that is, is, is becoming normal, that girls are expecting that they will, you know, that they're going to have to do this. And then... And, and you use the word girls, Sarah, and it is girls. It's very girls, young yeah. girls. Yeah, yeah. And, and we are seeing uh, a troubling increase in the perpetration of sexual violence and abuse by boys um, against girls. So this is something that is, you know, we're getting into territory where we should be looking, you know, we don't want to be looking to criminalise children, what we want is we need to really, um, you know, uh, work hard collectively as a community to support young people to understand what is uh, what is acceptable behaviour, what is unacceptable behaviour, what it is to behave in a healthy way towards your partner or somebody who okay. you're uh, being intimate with. Um, so th- there's an urgency here for us to do more. Very good. Sarah Benson, CEO of Women's Aid. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. The Housing Infrastructure Service Company, HISCO, a commercial joint venture between the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund and Cork County Council to build supporting infrastructure for housing, has announced details of a substantial investment in County Loud as it prepares to roll out its offering across Ireland. The company is to facilitate the delivery of 1,300 new homes in Drada by building the first phase of a new access road, which will eventually link the M1 to Drada Port on land owned by Louth County Council. Joining us this morning is uh, Niall Morrissey, CEO of Fisco. Niall, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, good news, um, but more importantly, as I understand it, these homes have planning permission. Is that correct? That's correct, Ellen. Um, yes. The, we, are, we have done um, agreements with two developers in the area, Castlethorne and Larkin Greenan, who both have planning permission, and uh, between them will deliver 1,300 units which were held up due to the lack of uh, the delivery of the first phase of that port access in Northern Crossroads there, not north of Drada. So it's good news in terms of delivery of housing. And not only that, but there are several other landowners who are preparing their planning applications and will be coming with their planning applications on the back of the fact that we have started this mm-hmm. road. And they, in turn, then will deliver up to about 5,000 units. So it's very good news for Drada and surrounding areas. OK, when we talk about infrastructure in relation to HISCO uh, and what they do, are we talking just specifically roads? Are we talking about services as well, such as water, sewage, etc.? Yeah, all of the above. So HISCO, HISCO was uh, formed by Cork County Council and the National Treasury Management Agency, who managed the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund. They looked at the problem with, um, you know, many planning approvals going through with not the same level of activity on the site. And one of the factors they, they honed in on was the, the lack of infrastructure around the country. So HISCO then was, was put together and we can deliver anything that's holding up residential development. So in this case, it's a road. It can be roundabouts. It can be the upgraded wastewater treatment plants, uh, water mains. It, it can be anything. If it's holding up residential development, uh, we can get involved. 
delivered on the back of doing legal agreements with the with the developers that would benefit from the delivery of those pieces of infrastructure. Okay, and on delivery, do you become a partner or do you get a fee on delivery of infrastructure? Yeah, great question. We, we deliver the service. We deliver the piece of infrastructure and we charge a fee for that service. So as soon as the piece of infrastructure is finished, so we, we deliver on-site and off-site infrastructure. Okay, Drawhead is, is off-site infrastructure. So when the road is completed towards the end of the year, that will be handed over to Loud County Council and, and they'll take that in charge and operate it in, in, in the usual manner. If it was on-site infrastructure, uh, where we're delivering roads, footpaths and public lighting and all the usual bits and pieces for, for the developer. Once Cisco is finished, we hand over the piece of infrastructure to the developer and then the, the unique element of Cisco's uh, uh, payment mechanism is we sit down and negotiate the fees with the developer. We break that down into a price per unit but that price per unit is only uh, payable to Hisco on the sale or first lease of each unit. So there's a great kind of a cash flow break there for developers in terms of, you know, we're not looking for a fee out then, but okay. they have income coming in the door in terms of the sale of units. And if we look at the model that's operating by Hisco, how significant is that in terms of increasing at speed the number of units that can be turned out? Yeah, I, I think it can be a game changer, Alan, to be fair. Um, like we're looking at projects right around the country, you know, from from in Kildare and Letterkenny, Galway down to Cork, over to Wicklow, uh, quite similar to the to the Drada project, and we're looking at a similar kind of scale in each, in each of those counties in terms of what potentially can be delivered on the back of the piece of infrastructure that we would deliver. And I said in in in, in Drada that will allow up to five thousand units being delivered. So I think Hisco can have a, a substantial impact on the speeding up of delivery of residential accommodation throughout the country. So I, I think we are going to have a substantial impact over the coming few years. And of course, everybody wants to know, great news, 3,500 units, when will they be delivered? And on that particular note, have you engaged and agreed a programme of works in order to begin this particular project that we know that there'll be an end to it? Or is there an agreed end to this? What's, what's the date? Yeah, absolutely. The piece of infrastructure we're delivering, we're on site there for the last few months and we'll be finished by December next in terms of the actual roadworks. Uh, the two developers are already on site, so they've kicked off. They haven't wasted any time in terms of delivery. And uh, so I, I'm I'm quite confident uh, people will start to see the houses for sale in that area. Um, by the end of this year, starting next year, you'll have, you'll have units on the market. And uh, and that, that's great credit to, to Low County Council in terms of the fact that they had planning for this road already and they had the compulsory purchase order in place and had it shovel ready. So all the statutory consents were in place. So, you know, huge thanks to John Martin and her team for having that ready and having it ready to go in terms of uh, enabling Tisco to come in there and, and construct it and fund it and get on with delivery of housing, which is not what we all want to see. And if we see a situation where there's an increase in business, how rapidly can you scale? Can you pivot towards that demand? In, in, around the country, is it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, we're ready. We have a substantial fund in place with the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund, and that's where we borrow our monies to actually deliver these projects. So uh, we have a substantial fund there already, uh, for 60 million in place, and, and that can be can be extended if the projects that are coming in are, are above that. So no, I'm, I'm quite confident we can handle wherever the challenges are, we can take them on uh, and deliver. And what's all, the key thing there is engagement with the local authorities and as Loud had done, having them trouble ready instead of the, uh, having the statutory consent in place to get on with actually delivery of the, of the piece of infrastructure. 
Very good. Niall Morrissey, CEO of Hisco, joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Well, there's been great sadness on the local and national boxing scene and on the political scene in County Louth following the announcement of the death of Drogheda Man and former IABA president Tommy Murphy. Tommy had a lifelong association with the sport. He was a former chairman of the Drogheda Club and also served as national registrar. His family say that boxing was his love and his life. Charismatic figure, he was also very well known in local political circles and was a former Lord Mayor and Alderman of Drogheda, having served for more than 30 years as a public representative in Louth. Before coming on air, I spoke to Minister Thomas Byrne, Minister for Sport and Physical Education, and asked him for his thoughts following the news. Well, look, uh, I think uh, everybody will uh, join us in paying tribute to former Councillor Tommy Murphy and indeed paying sympathy to his family. Um, he was a fantastic uh, local politician in Drogheda, uh, but he also made a huge national impact as well uh, in the Irish Amateur Boxing Association. And I know, indeed, from my uh, role in the Department of Sport, how well-respected Tommy was uh, over many years uh, in boxing. But he also made a huge contribution uh, to politics in Drogheda. Uh, he served alongside uh, my father, Tommy, uh, on Drogheda Borough Council. And indeed, Tommy served on Loud County Council, I think, for about 25 years, uh, perhaps. So... Uh, he was a long-standing politician. He was always around the town talking to people, uh, engaging with his constituents, and quite frankly, trying to do his very best for the uh, the least well-off in society. That's certainly my memory of him working with my father uh, many years ago. And no doubt your father would have told you of him being quite a forthright politician that was one of those old-school, no-nonsense type of politicians. Oh, indeed. Uh, he was very outspoken, but, I mean, to the betterment and the benefit of his constituents. That's what it was all about. It wasn't about him. Uh, and indeed, even when working with my father, I remember Tommy being very, very outspoken uh, and just being very forthright, I think, is the way. I think that's what people want uh, in politicians. They want honesty uh, and decency. And Tommy showed them in absolute abundance on the local level and on the national scene as well uh, with boxing. Deputy Fergus O'Dowd also spoke to me earlier and shared his thoughts and his memories of the late politician. Tommy was a great counsellor. He was a great boxer. He fought his corner, as to say, off and on the field. He was uh, a larger-than-life character. Everybody liked Tommy. He was really a man of the people, a working-class man of the people. He held his clinic uh, on the town centre opposite St. Peter's. You see him there three or four times a week, surrounded by his buddies. Uh, he was a Fianna Fáil councillor, but he was, as he said, he was a socialist. He was for the people. He never... You know, he, he always spoke for the ordinary man, and I know his daughters, Kim and Carl, were missing greatly, as will all of the people of Drogheda that knew him, Pierce Park and all around that area. He was he was a legend. Tommy was a real legend, and we miss him. And he was a no-nonsense politician and never was what would be considered to be a shrinking violet. No, he was never a shrinking violet. <clears throat> He used to refer to him as the soldier Murphy. He fought his battle and he always won. And look, he was, he, 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 obviously he was involved in pitch and put. And, uh, you know, he was, he was, he was an ordinary guy in every way, but he was a straight talker and, uh, he uh, often had good rides with the council and the council officials. They were wary of him because he would call it as it was. He punched, uh, he, you know, he punched from the left and the right. <laughs> He connected off and got the, the usual boxer knockout at times. And he was very popular and you know, really, really miss his lively presence. 
And local politics will miss him, and perhaps local politics needs more people like him. It does, and that's one of the issues that is that local politics has got very difficult. You almost have to be like a TD with all the pressures on you. You've got to, you know, you've got to respond instantly to problems, and clearly, you know, you have another life to lead as well. So it makes huge demands on people, and people are finding it very hard now, uh, you know, to stand for election because there's very little attraction in it if you're going to be faced with abuse on Facebook and stuff like that, which does definitely happen. So I think the people need to think again, you know, certainly about the local politicians, uh, you know, to you know, to encourage them and respect them maybe a bit more than they do. And that was Deputy Fergus O'Dowd speaking about the late Tommy Murphy. And just to let you know that Tommy's funeral mass takes place this Thursday at noon at St. Peter's Church in West Street. Now, let's go back to 2003. And for those of you um, who have been listening to Michael for many years will know that Tommy was a great contributor. He was a great friend of the show. And we went back to 2003 when Tommy came into the show to talk and to quash rumours that he was considering leaving Fianna Fáil to run as an independent. Well, would you uh, consider running as an independent? No, not really. You have had problems with the party in general. Uh, at one stage you asked all of the councillors in Drada to resign their seat. I can't remember that, but I may have said that. Yes, I may have said that. Yeah, uh, because of the town's exclusion from the national spatial strategy? Yes, well, I feel... Oh, that, well, that was a pretty dramatic move, asking the Minister for Local Government to run the borough because of uh, your stance. I think, you see, we have councillors on... I keep saying this to people. We are on the front lines, and we have to listen to what people say. And if people are not happy with various things that departments bring out, then I think it's only right for we, as representative of those peoples, should make those points. Now, I can be accused of, and I've no doubt I will, that because the elections is on next year, that I'm making all this noise. But I want to tell you, Michael, I've been making noise since I joined Vienna Fall. And the people in Vienna Fall, the people who in our party, realised the sort of a gentleman I am, that I will raise these issues at every opportunity I get, and that's what makes our party so good in Drogheda. And we have people like me who will say these things. In March, you met with the Taoiseach. Yes. Uh, you discussed funding for the Drogheda Port Access Route, shortfall in the estimates, loss of industry, broadband and grants for a swimming pool, a new railway station, schools, and improved parking. Did he come back to you on any of those points? Not, not at the moment, Moyer. But what I'm trying to say to you is this. We are raising these, even though people go onto your radio and say, oh, the Fianna Fáil councils are doing nothing. All they want to do is this. They're getting backhands. They're doing all sorts of things. No. We are working for the people, and we will continue to do that. And we have to make sometimes very hard decisions as council. And we do that and stand over them. We don't sit on our hands and say, hail, hail, the people out there are going to want this, they don't want that, just for the sake of getting votes. We don't do that. Late Tommy Murphy, Councillor Tommy Murphy, speaking to Michael back in 2003 here on LMFM and just to remind you again Tommy's Funeral Mass takes place Thursday at noon in St. Peter's Church in West Street I'm back with you tomorrow same time do enjoy the rest of the day until then good morning The Michael Reed Show Podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.